We are in, in Romans chapter 11. We started it last week and we covered, we covered some parts of it. And uh, we're going to cover more of it today, Romans chapter 11. And uh, uh, what Paul is doing is he, is he is showing us that Israel, that how he's going to save the world, Israel specifically, and, and uh, the Gentile world as well. Through this chapter, he's showing us that. So we get this instruction here, and he's showing us that it's not over for Israel. That it's not over at all, because we read in the last verse of chapter 10 of Romans, it says, but as for, but as for Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now when you read something like that, you might think that, okay, well, it's, it's toast for them. No, it's not toast at all. I'll tell you that, that Israel has a major, major part to play. And we see that throughout the scriptures. We see prophecies. And the church has not usurped these, these prophecies that were made for Israel. The church has not taken over this at all. The church has its role. Israel has its role. And Israel's role has not gone away. It has not changed. And uh, that's what we're going to see here. And uh, uh, Israel has a major part to play. And then nothing has changed. Nothing has redirected. Uh, every prophecy concerning Israel has either come about or will come about, and the church does not take away those prophecies. Those prophecies are going to remain. If people tell you otherwise, they're wrong. Okay? They're just wrong. Uh, God has a special plan. Every word of God that was proclaimed is going to come to pass. He will make it come to pass. There is nothing that can thwart this. Not even the sin of man, not even the sin of humans can thwart this. So let's read from chapter 11 of Romans. Romans chapter 11, we're going to start reading from verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israel. Israelite, descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And... and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. So what we see is that is that we covered uh, uh, the first few verses last time. We covered these verses last time, but it says very clearly, very specifically, um, God has not rejected his people. And in verse 2, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And if we look back in this, uh, uh, this same word to foreknow was in, in Romans chapter 8 that, that he foreknew, uh, in Acts chapter 8 verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. 
and we talked about this, that there is predestination outlined in the Bible. You got a problem with that? You got a problem with the Bible? The Bible's right, we're wrong. All right? That's just the way it is. And uh, um, here he has predestined a nation. God chose a nation. He chose a nation. He chooses individuals, people that, that are individuals. He chose a nation. And you look at the nation of Israel, that nation was different than all other nations. He chose that nation. He did something very special with that nation that he didn't do with the Hittites. Or, and and he, he did something very special with them that he didn't do with the Egyptians, that he didn't do with the Babylonians. He did something very special with the nation of Israel. And we see that. And, and here he's talking about this national pre, predestination, this national predestination. And that's not to mean everybody in Israel, but a remnant was going to be saved among them. He chose the nation to do something special. <clears throat> when it went, when it became the individuals, he chose certain individuals in that. And that's what he's going to say. Or do you not know what the scriptures say in verse 2 of chapter 11? In the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel. What I wanted to key in on, and we looked last time at Elijah and how he was way up in, in Mount Carmel and he came down and, and, and then he, he goes further down into the wilderness. So he goes down in Bathsheba and then in, into Beersheba and then he goes down into the wilderness and then God calls him to go back up to Damascus. And so this came with great trial, but Elijah pleads with God against Israel. He pleads with him. It's not just a little passing prayer. I mean, these guys were serious about prayer. He pleads with him. Prayer is a serious thing. He He's pleading with God. Why does he have to plead with God? Why, why can't you just say it and be done with it? Well, the, the pattern we have in Scripture is that there's a wrestling that takes place in prayer. Sometimes there's there's a, a simple voicing of a prayer when people are in a, in a dire strait, and other times that there is a wrestling in a private time in prayer. That's what we see with Elijah, and he was Elijah was a man with a spirit like ours, the scriptures tell us. And he pleads with God against Israel. He says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? Paul says, when he pleads this prayer, what is the divine response? Paul views the scriptures as God's divine response. There is a divine response here. I'm telling you, every word of God, every word in this book is from God. It is a divine response. We have every word from God. This is an amazing book. This is God's word to humanity. I love the scriptures. It, 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 it's like nothing else. And then you have people. You have people that can, that can go and spend like 10 years studying theology. 10 years. Now, would would somebody study chemistry for 10 years, go and get a, a PhD in chemistry, and get a postdoc in chemistry, if they didn't believe in chemistry? I mean, would people do that? Would people study mathematics for 10 years and get a PhD in it if they didn't believe in mathematics? I mean, no, you'd say you're crazy. But there are people who will study theology and get a PhD in it and not even believe in God. You wonder, how, how can you how can you do this? How can you do this? Here, this is clear. This is the divine response. Chapter 11, verse 4. But what is the divine response to him? The response. There's a divine response here. God is responding. 
remember, Paul is writing this, and you say, well, Paul must have had all copies of the scriptures around him. No, you, you know what it took to look this stuff up? You know, you had a big scroll. You had to go into a synagogue and unroll this thing to find a verse. And if you were you were going to quote from the from the uh, uh, Torah, the first five books, a huge scroll, and you had to un, un, open up this scroll and find this verse in there. And and uh, um, remember, there were no chapters and verses, so to find something because it was just one continuous thing. It was really hard to find stuff. And uh, um, so, and especially when Paul is writing from prison, he's not looking in the scrolls. He's not, he doesn't have access to a synagogue to get these scrolls. Paul is, is referencing all of this from memory. So when he has these, these quote fests, where he starts quoting scripture after scripture, Paul has just been, his life has been engrossed in this thing. Do you see the love for the word of God that's there? There's so much that he can draw upon. And look, what I want you to see is how Paul formulates an argument. Look how this man formulates an argument. He formulates it all around Scripture. He says, look what the Scriptures say. Boom, boom, boom. Because that's the defining word of God. It's not what Jim Tour thinks. It's not what Paul the Apostle thinks. It's what the Scriptures say. What the script, although Paul being an apostle, what he thinks means something, because sometimes he says, you know, this is not of the Lord, but let me give you some advice. But it's not what Jim Tour thinks. It's not what any of us think. It's what the scriptures say. What the scriptures say. What do the scriptures say about the, these things? What do the scriptures teach us? This is what it's all about. What does the scriptures teach us? This is what the whole thing is. And look how he formulates an argument. He just builds it around the scripture. This would do us well in life. It would do us well in life if we learned to deal with problems like this. Well, what do the scriptures say? Now, what he's quoting here isn't exactly what was going on with Elijah. What was going on with Elijah, Elijah thought, you know, he's pleading with God against saying, you know, I'm the only one that's left. Only I am left. And God says, no, there's 7,000 in Israel that have not bowed their knee to Baal. There's a, there, there, there's a remnant. There's a remnant in Israel, 7,000 of them. Now, 7,000 is not a lot among a, na- a whole nation. But it's demonstrative of the fact that it's not just, just Paul. He's giving this example. There were 7,000 in Israel. But you see what he's doing. He brings comfort to the situation by taking passages of Scripture. This is why it's so important to know this book. You cannot know this book by just occasionally reading it. You cannot. This book is something that you get by daily meditation on the Word of God. If you find somebody, you show me a man, show me a woman, that every day is in the Word of God. I'm talking about every day. You know what every day means? It means every day is in this book. Spending time slowly, not just speed reading this thing, but pensively. You look at a verse and say, Lord, speak to me through this. Then you read the next verse. This now becomes a part of your life so that when you're in situations, you're like Paul. Boom, boom, boom. You just grab these things and it starts influencing your life. I'm telling you, this is how you get wisdom for life. This is how you get understanding to deal with all these things in life. It's through the scriptures. If I could leave you young people with something, with one thing that you walk out of here when, whenever you graduate and leave this Bible study and go off to, 
that you would have an, an honor and respect for the Word of God and make it a part of your daily life, I would just rest. I mean, I, I, could just, I could just retire. If I know that you've got the Word of God and it is in your life every day, you don't need me. This book by itself will speak to you. God Himself will speak to you. Think of the God who created this universe. I mean, just like in a snap, boom. He doesn't even have to say it, just think it, boom, it's done. He'll speak to you. He'll speak to you in your situation. He'll give you wisdom, he'll give you insight for your situations through passages in this book. And you say, well, you know, you could you could misinterpret something. Okay, so you misinterpret things, it's part of life. Then you get kind of beat up and you say, well, I misinterpreted that thing. But you get the, all of these passages for life. This is what he's doing. He takes this somewhat obscure passage and he, he, he uses this to give them understanding. And so he's showing that, that there's always been a remnant as there is to this day. Because he says in verse 5, In the same way, then, there has come to be... The, at the present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice. There is a remnant. There is a remnant to this day. In the same way that it happened, it's the same today. You see how the argument goes. Do you see how you get wisdom for life? Last night, uh, one young lady, we were having, we, we, we were at a gathering and, and we were sitting next to one of the young ladies in this class. And, and she said, um, what does wisdom look like for you for a college student? So profound. It was very easy. Very easy. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I told you, you take this book, you make, your da- make it your daily meditation, you will have the wisdom you need. It's, it's that simple. It's not some ethereal thing. Oh, wisdom, I'll find it someday. No, it's right here. It's right here. It's right in front of your face. It's, it's, it's like this stumbling block to the Jewish people. God set it right in front of their face. And they fall over it all the time. It's right in front of them. They're reading about all the time the answer. It's in Jesus. Because whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, doesn't matter. It's salvation only in Jesus Christ. That's the way it is. And it's a stumbling block right in front of them. This is right in front of you. The wisdom is right here in this book. And he says, in the same way, what applied then applies now. It has come to the present time, a remnant, according to God's gracious choice. If you read in the King James, according to the election of grace. Election, choice, God chose. You say, no, it's according to um, uh, uh, if those people really wanted it. No, because it says in Romans chapter 9... Uh, uh, in Romans chapter 9, verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, meaning doing all the things that he can do or she can do, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs. I mean, it says it right here. You go, oh, I mean, it's right there. It's right there. According to God's gracious choice, God chose that remnant. He chose that remnant according to God's gracious choice, according to the election of grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. It is not on the basis of works. God chose. You see, well, is that fair? 
I don't know if it's fair, but I know it's right. Because I trust God. He knows what's right. Remember, the whole mass of human humanity, of humanity, the whole mass of humanity, there is not one, no, not one, that seeks after God. Not even one. Remember, we read that over and over again in Romans chapter 3. There's not even one. The whole mass of humanity is proceeding to the path of destruction. And God, in his mercy, reaches in and takes some. That's the picture of Scripture. His ways are higher than our ways. They are higher. As far as the heavens are above the earth, how much higher are you than an earthworm? Six feet higher? Right? Do you have more wisdom than an earthworm? Yes. But you're only six feet higher than them. So imagine if you're from the heavens to the earth higher. That's how high his ways are above our ways. It's like it's like earthworm to human by times you know twenty orders of magnitude. That's how much it's different. Then he says he says, uh, what then? Okay, so what about this? What then? What Israel in verse seven, what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Those who were chosen, he's not talking about, he's not talking about Gentiles. He's still on this topic of Jews. Those who were chosen among Israel obtained it. This is what he's, and that is today Messianic Jews. Did you know what the, 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 the Council of Rabbis, the Council of Rabbis has said in the last 20 years, in the last 20 years, there are more Jews that are following Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. More Jews have chosen to follow Jesus the Messiah in the last 20 years than in the last 2,000 years combined. Is God doing something? Yeah, he's doing something. And and uh, uh, what what he says is is God has chosen them and the rest were hardened. He hardened them? Wow, that's interesting. Well, remember we had read in Romans chapter 9, we had read that in verse 18, Romans 9, 18 said, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. But this hardening just means you, you take something that's already there and you harden it. You make it stronger in what it already is. You make it more of what it already is. I mean, Pharaoh was already a bad man. He was already torturing the the sons of Israel. He was already torturing them. He was already saying that that uh, um, you, you know work them, work them, work them. When God said, "Okay, well, I'll harden you," and it and it made them even worse. And it's the same pattern in our lives. See, so it says in verse eight. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Who gave them a spirit of stupor? Stupor means semi-consciousness or unconsciousness. It's this, oh. God gave them this spirit of stupor. God gave it to them. You see what I mean? It's God who gave it to them. It's not that they... they, they it, God gave it to them. His ways are higher than ours. I'm just reading the text. If it bothers you... I'm just the messenger. God gave it to them. God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see not and ears to hear not. Down to this very day. 
You know, God, God just visits people and he, and he, and he visits them exactly as they're acting. So for example, um, God gives back in abundance what they're already doing. So Pharaoh says, says, uh, uh, kill all the male children among the Jewish people, among, among Israel. That's what he says. Take the male children and throw them into the Nile. So you know what God does? He kills all the firstborn in Egypt. All of them. Kills all the firstborn. You wanted to kill my offspring by drowning? You know what he does? He kills the entire Egyptian army by drowning in the Red Sea. You know, he, he, you, uh, you don't mess around with God. God gives back blessing for blessing and curse for curse in kind. God does it. Israel is going, is being taken into Babylon. This is the first diaspora. They're being taken into Babylon. Why are they being taken into Babylon? What do the scriptures say? What is the reason for their being taken into Babylon? The scriptures give us three reasons why the nation of Israel is taken into Babylon. For 70 years, they're taken into Babylon. Number one, idol worship. They were taken into Babylon because of idol worship. Number two, because they didn't give the land rest. Every seventh year, they were to rest the land because they didn't have ammonia. Now we have the Haber-Bosch process, which makes gaseous ammonia, and you pump that into the ground, and you don't have to let the ground replenish. You can just pump it in the ground, it gets all the ammonia needs, and, and uh, when the Haber-Bosch process came in, you can just map the human population. It just went right up. Because you could, you could start getting so much more pro- productivity from the land. But back then they had to, they had to, to, uh, um, not use the land for, for one year out of every seven. It's just because you didn't rest the land. And number three, because you forgot about the poor. You weren't taking care of the poor. Three reasons why they went into Babylon. What did he do when he put them in Babylon? For 70 years he gave the land rest. I'm going to rest the land for 70 years. You didn't rest it one out of every seven. I'm giving the land a rest for 70 years. You wanted idols? I'll give you idols. They put them in Babylon where there were said to be more idols than ever any place in the world. There were so many idols in Babylon. You wanted idols? He gave you idols. And then taking care of the poor, you didn't take care of the poor, you're going to be refugees and you are going to be poor in Babylon. You are going to be refugees. Who has nothing when they come? It's refugees. Have nothing. Only what they can put on their back. But when they are refugee slaves, they don't even get to put a a backpack on their back. They came with nothing. You see, you get back. God does this. You're hard. He he comes comes back at you with hardening. So you you can even see the same thing in, uh, in, in Matthew. In Matthew chapter, chapter, um, uh, Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, Luke chapter 6, verse 37 and 38. Luke chapter 6, verse 37 and 38 says this. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. So what he's talking about here, he's not talking about giving money. He's talking about the way you act. Luke 6.37, do not judge, you'll not be judged. Do not condemn, you will not be condemned. Uh, uh, pardon, and you will be pardoned. He's talking about our attitude toward others, right? This is not in the context of giving money. 
Now, it may apply to that too, but this verse is not in the context of giving money. And what does he say in the next verse? Luke chapter 6, verse 38 says, Give, and it'll be given to you. They will pour into your lap, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, I know people love to use this verse in the context of giving money, but it was not given in the context of giving money. It was given in the context of judging, condemning, and pardoning. In the context of judging, condemning, and pardoning. The same way you judge, the same way you condemn, the same way you pardon, you're going to get it back. But you don't just get back one for one. No way. Not with God. You're going to get it back, poured into your lap. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. It's going to be running over. In your lap. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. If we judge others, we will be judged. In the same way that we judge others, we will be judged, but like a hundredfold more. You plant one kernel of corn in the ground, you get like 10,000 kernels back. That's the principle of sowing and reaping. Hardening. You be a little bit hard towards somebody, you get a lot of hardening that comes upon you. They hardened their hearts, and their hearts were hard already. God said, okay. Blessing for blessing, curse for curse, you're going to get back. This is what he's talking about in this context. In this context, as he's talking about this, in verse 8 of, of Romans chapter 11, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not down to this very day. You keep denying the Lord, every time you deny the Lord, I mean, it's just like, it, it, it's hard to hear after this. And it really struck me this week. It struck me this week because uh, um, sometimes I like... So, so most of my study, most of my study is done um, reading the New American Standard Version, 1995. Because New American Standard, every 25 years they update the language because they say uh, uh, English language changes enough every every quarter century so they kind of update it. So I, I'm, I study in the 19... 95 edition of New American Standard. But sometimes, in my personal time of reading, I'll read the King James Version. You say, King James? Well, that was my first Bible, was the King James. And, and uh, so I read the King James Version. And, and in the King James Version, something comes out that you just, just it's different in the New American Standard. And, and so I was reading in Matthew chapter 26. So this is in my own time. I'm just reading. And, and uh, it is about when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying in his time of travail. And he comes up to the mountain with his disciples and then in verse 37 of Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, verse 37, he separates his three special disciples, Peter, James, and John. This is Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. And he goes forward with them and he commands them. He says, he said in verse 38, Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He told them, Keep watch with me. Keep watch with me is, is, is a euphemism for pray with me. Keep watch with me. Pray with me in this. And then he went a little beyond them. He fell on his face and he prayed. And, and, so, and then he comes back in verse 40 and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men couldn't keep watch with me? For one hour? Have any of you ever tried to pray for one hour? Give it a try. Give it a try. Let me know if you fall asleep. 
It's really easy to fall asleep if you're going to seriously pray for one hour. And he said, he said, uh, um, you couldn't do it? You couldn't keep watch with me for even one hour? So his saying that is an implication is saying, you really need to be praying for me. Though he didn't say it, pray for me, keep watch with me. He said, you couldn't keep watch with me even for one hour? Then in verse 41, he tells them, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So he commands him a second time. Keep watching and praying. Second time. He went away and he, again a second time and he prayed, Father, if this, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So he came back and he found them sleeping again. It's like, oh. And he left them and he went away and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing one more time. So he, he goes away a third time, probably for a third hour. You know, because he says it the same way. The first time he was gone for one hour. So he comes, probably his third hour, he comes back praying. And he finds them sleeping once more, but now he doesn't wait, even wake them up. So the first time he wakes them up and he tells them again. The second time he, he warned them. The third time he didn't even wake them up. He just let them sleep. Verse 45, Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? That's what it says in the in the New American Standard. But if you go to the King James, or if you go to the Young's Literal, what does it literally say? He says, Then he came, this is in Young's Literal, Matthew 26, 45, Then he cometh unto his disciples, and he saith to them, Sleep on henceforth and rest. He tells them, go ahead and sleep. Go ahead and sleep. You see, this is, this is like a judgment. Pray with me. He wakes them up. He says, you couldn't even pray with me for one hour? The third time he comes, he says, let them sleep. The fourth time he comes, they're still sleeping. He says, sleep, rest. It's like a judgment. It's like a judgment. And uh, 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 it's like he releases us. This is to his disciples. If if this doesn't strike us, to take take heed, to take warning. God will speak to us a few times. He speaks to us a, a few times, and uh, um, and then he 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 releases us, and then he even pushes us into this. In Titus chapter three, verse ten and eleven. Uh, Paul is instructing Titus on how to run the church, and he says, Reject a, fas- a factious man, a man who b- brings factions into the church. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. You give him a warning, you give him a second warning, and after that, you reject him. This is what he told Titus, how to work in the church. This is serious stuff. God impresses on our hearts to spend time with Him. Jesus was impressing upon His disciples, spend time with me. They fell asleep. He came back, He said, spend time with me. The third time He comes back, they're sleeping again. He doesn't say anything. The fourth time He says, sleep. He proclaims sleep upon them. 
If this does not give us pause, then our hearts are really hardened. If the Lord has impressed upon your heart to take these scriptures and to make them your daily meditation, there will come a time where you do not hear this warning anymore. What you're going to hear is, sleep on. Sleep. And when you get to that point, you flee from the Lord Jesus when troubles come, like his disciples did. They were about, they were minutes away from fleeing from him. Minutes away from fleeing from him. You will become super weak. This is a warning from God for us. So when we look in Romans, when we look in Romans chapter 11 and it says, and their hearts were hardened and we go, oh, no. oh how could they just have rebelled against the Lord so much that he hardened their hearts? I say, look at myself, Lord. I need to look at myself. When I was reading this in the King James Version, which quotes it right from the literal version, he's not asking the question, are you sleeping again? He's saying, sleep on. Sleep on. Continue to sleep. I said, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for all the times you have spoken to me. And I've just... I've just rejected it. Because you've said to me, it's okay, sleep, Is that if that's what you want. You see this hardening? The hardening comes over the heart. You think just because you're chosen, your heart can't be hardened? It certainly can be hardened. God hardened their hearts. That's what he's talking about. He strengthened them to do what they were doing anyway. So he said, sleep on. That's what we're talking about, hardening. You close your eyes to what God is doing, he says, okay. He blinded their eyes. You close your ears to what God is saying, okay, he made you deaf. Remember, he gives blessing for blessing and curse for curse in kind, matches the same way, but multiple fold, multiple fold, because of the principle of sowing and reaping. This is a serious word. The word of God is serious. It is an amazing thing. We don't mess around with this word. I'm not here to come and just tell you stories about my fishing trip. Read some perfunctory verse and tell you stories. This is the word of God. And actually, this is the life that you seek. I know it. This is the life that people seek. They seek the word of God. This is feeds us. Feeds us. If we do not teach the word of God... Verse by verse, getting into the Word of God, people will go elsewhere. They'll go elsewhere. This is what feeds us. This is our life. That's why the Bible says, this is not an idle word for you. This word that I've been instructing you, this is your life. This is our life. Let's take heed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Blessed be your name forever and ever. Lord, I thank and I praise you for your mercy and for your grace. You are so good. Thank you for your word that you give us the treasure of the scriptures. And you beckon us to come, to come, to make this a part of our lives where we can just just extract truths from this. Just as life hits us with certain situations that we have verses embedded within our hearts that give us insight on how we are to live our lives. Oh, my Father, my Father, please 
drill this right down into these young people's hearts. If they would just take hold of this truth, that this word of God is a word of life for them. That they would not get to the point where you just say, okay, sleep on. Sleep on, O sleepy one. O Father, forgive us. Forgive us for not taking heed according to your word. Father, forgive us for having to have to harden us because we've rejected the things that you've been speaking to us. Lord, let us take heed. Get a hold of our hearts and have mercy on us. Father, have mercy on us. Lord Jesus, you are so good in every way. Praise be to your name and thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Blessed be Jesus. Amen.